February 1995, a Port Authority helicopter was flying down the east side of Manhattan. As it came within view of the World Trade Center, Deputy Assistant FBI Director William Gavin removed the blindfold on the prisoner the helicopter was transporting. He had been captured halfway around the world in a house in Islamabad, Pakistan, and was being brought back to New York City to stand trial. Look down there, they're still standing, Gavin told him. Almost two years to the day since he and his accomplices had parked a van loaded with a bomb in the garage, Ramzi Youssef was looking at the buildings they had tried to destroy. His response was chilling and self-incriminating. They wouldn't be if I had enough money and explosives. Years before Osama bin Laden became a household name, the FBI's most wanted terrorist was a Pakistani in his mid-twenties named Ramzi Youssef who was the mastermind of the 1993 World Trade Center bombing. Two years later, he was one of the co-architects of an audacious, multi-pronged terror attack that was a conceptual predecessor to the 9-11 attacks. His partner in crime in the latter affair was his uncle, a then-unknown terrorist operative named Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. I'm David DeSola. This is the third episode of Zero Hour, A History of 9-11. Nearly two years before Ramzi Youssef first set foot in Manhattan, 2,245 people were killed in New York City during the year 1990. One of those deaths would take on much greater significance that was not apparent at first to investigators. November 5, 1990, American-born rabbi and Israeli politician Meir Kahani is addressing an audience of about 60 people inside the ballroom of the Marriott Eastside Hotel in New York City. They are members of the Zionist Emergency Evacuation Rescue Organization. Kehani was a lightning rod on the Israel-Palestine issue, and unapologetically so. Over the years, he was quoted as saying, The idea of a democratic Jewish state is nonsense. And, I don't want to kill Arabs, I just want them to live happily elsewhere. A court document described him as, quote, A militant Zionist who advocated expelling Arabs from Israel. In 1968, he formed the Jewish Defense League to form armed responses to local criminal acts and acts of anti-Semitism. The group fell under the scrutiny of law enforcement, and Kahani was sentenced to a year in jail for conspiring to make bombs. He moved to Israel in 1971, where he formed the Kach Party and was elected as a member of parliament in 1984. The Kach Party had a nationalist anti-Arab platform, according to the Associated Press. Quote, the party advocates the ouster of all Arabs from Israeli-held territory and a ban on Jewish-Arab marriages. The movement's symbol is a clenched fist inside a Star of David. It was later banned from Israeli parliament for its racist and undemocratic views. At just after 9 p.m., Kahani was taking questions from the audience, according to the Associated Press. A man approached him and fired two shots from about four feet away using a 357 Magnum revolver. One round hit Kahani in the neck. The gunman ran away and bumped into a 70-year-old Irving Franklin who tried to stop him on the way out. He shot Franklin in the leg. The gunman made it outside and tried to hijack a taxi cab. A uniformed U.S. Postal Service officer named Carlos Acosta witnessed this. The two men exchanged gunfire in the middle of Lexington Avenue. As Acosta tried to draw his weapon and identify himself, the gunman fired two shots at him. The first shot hit him in the chest which was deflected toward his shoulder because of the bulletproof vest he was wearing. The second just missed his head. Acosta fired one round that hit the gunman in the neck. The gunman was later identified as El Sayyid Nasser, an Egyptian engineer, 
It was the first documented attack by an Islamic radical on American soil, though the full significance of the killing was not understood at the time. In a moment of incredible symbolism and juxtaposition, both Kahani and Nasser were brought to Bellevue Hospital. A camera crew was there filming a documentary about life in the emergency room. They managed to film both assassin and victim as they were brought in, and doctors tried to keep them alive. Kahane and Nasser were laying on gurneys side by side in the emergency room, only a few feet apart. Nasser recovered. Kahane did not. After the assassination, authorities served search warrants on Nasser's home, car, and work lockers. 47 boxes of evidence were taken from his apartment alone. One of the items that was seized was a handwritten diary in Arabic, in which Nasser recorded a Brooklyn-based radical sheikh's calls for holy war. One key excerpt, quote, to break and destroy the morale of the enemies of Allah, and this is by means of destroying the structure of their civilized pillars, such as the touristic infrastructure which they are proud of, and their high world buildings which they are proud of, and their statues which they endear, and the buildings in which they gather their leaders. According to journalist Tim Wiener's book Enemies, the diary went unread for the next three years. At the time, the FBI only had one translator capable of understanding Arabic. Oliver Ravel, who had served as Associate Deputy FBI Director for Investigative and Counterintelligence Operations, would later testify that if the diary had been properly translated and analyzed, the FBI would have seen, quote, a direct association between the assassin of Meyer Kahane and the group that conspired and eventually did bomb the World Trade Center. Looking back on it in retrospect, why was the Kahane assassination much more significant than just a local anti-Semitic murder? Here's Clinton White House counterterrorism director Stephen Simon. The significance of, of the assassination of Kahana was mostly uh, in its connection to this larger uh, network of uh, Sunni activists uh, that was gathering momentum. Uh, at that time, and was affiliated with some players who were in the United States, like um, the so-called blind sheikh, uh, Abdurrahman. So uh, that was that was the significance. There was a lot going on uh, that uh, suggested a kind of a burgeoning and in internationalization of this Sunni activism. And the assassination of Kahana was uh, a manifestation of that of that momentum uh, that we were looking at and, and was of growing concern, of course, happening also at the same time as, as the United States was um, uh, involved in a kind of a twilight war with Iran. So um, you know, the situation was quite complicated. I think if, 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 your, if your questions, um, uh, did these pieces fall into place um, uh, you know, somewhat slowly and over time, I think that's, uh, I think it's a great question. And the answer is, yeah, you know, the, the, the significance of, of events uh, wasn't, some of these events wasn't really properly understood uh, for a while after they took place. In retrospect, of course, that's not surprising. I mean, because um, it was a new phenomenon, uh, for the U.S., the U.S. hadn't faced it previously, uh, and and it hadn't. And, and outside of Egypt, really, it hadn't made its presence felt. 
So, you know, if you were following uh, events in Egypt fairly carefully, then, you know, you might have seen resonances of, of this kind of uh, Sunni militant violence. But, um, you know, domestically in the United States, there was really no, um, uh, no significant experience um, of it. And I think that down the World Trade Center in 1993 uh, uh, was itself an event that took a while to process and only began uh, to make sense in the context of um, uh, events that, that happened afterward. Former CIA analyst Paul Piller offers this take. That was one of the events uh, which included the you know, first World Trade Center bombing. Uh, that led up to you know our country's uh, encounter with that brand of uh, of radical Islam, um, yeah. and in this case, you know, centered in the New York area. Well, one thing that that whole history is relevant to is the mistake of trying to label and categorize you know groups as if they were um, uh, they, they define very rigid uh, organizational boundaries. We, we got into this habit, unfortunately, you know, post 9-11, where uh, anything that happened in way of an incident or arrest, the first question that came up, well, was this Al-Qaeda or was it not? And if you're talking about people in the sort of radical Sunni jihadist universe, um, and there are all kinds of, you know, shades of green and gray that would cover that, uh, uh, that, that universe, um, there, there aren't clear lines. Uh, and when, when people talk about, you know, the founding of Al-Qaeda or, you know, this was this individual was in it, that individual was not, I think that's a mistake. Uh, we're, we're talking about um, trends in thinking and tendencies in thinking uh, that have manifested themselves in violent acts, uh, some of which uh, we can pin the Al-Qaeda label on and some of which we can't, but they really are part of the larger, same larger phenomenon. And we think about things like the Kahana assassination um, or the 1993 World Trade Center bombing and Ramsey Yusuf's other act, earlier activities. This is what we have to keep in mind. December 21st, 1991, a grand jury acquits El-Sayed Nasser on state charges of murdering Meyer Kahane and trying to kill U.S. Postal Service police officer Carlos Acosta, but convicts him on lesser charges of assault and gun possession. At the sentencing hearing a month later, Judge Alvin Schlesinger was sharply critical of the jury's acquittal. He sentenced Nosser to the maximum of 7 to 22 years, stemming from his convictions on gun possession, assault, and coercion charges. But Nosser's involvement in Islamic terrorism wasn't over yet. January 25, 1993. A Pakistani national named Mir Aymal Qazi parked his car off of Route 123 near the entrance to CIA headquarters in Langley, Virginia. It was in the middle of the morning rush hour when he took out an AK-47, walked among the cars, and began firing shots. They were at a stoplight as they were about to turn into the main entrance to the CIA. Qazi fired 11 bullets at 5 cars. Two people died, both of them CIA employees. Three others were wounded. Two of them CA employees, the other a telephone company employee. After it was over, he went back to his apartment and stuffed the murder weapon under his couch. According to Steve Call's book Ghost Wars, Kazi had expected to confront police during the act, but bought a plane ticket home to Pakistan in case he managed to escape. He drove to a local Days Inn hotel and checked himself in. A day later, he was on a flight back to Pakistan. 
because he had self-radicalized in that pre-YouTube, pre-social media era by spending hours watching CNN coverage of the Middle East, specifically the Gulf War and the Israel-Palestine conflict. He originally considered attacking the White House or the Israeli Embassy in Washington, D.C. before settling on CIA headquarters. Why pick that as a target? According to Call, quote, Kazi believed that the agency was directly responsible for the deaths of many Muslims. Once he was identified as the shooter, the U.S. government offered a reward for information leading to Kazi's capture. The CIA would spend the next four years trying to find him. Like Nasser in New York City a little more than two years earlier, authorities did not recognize the significance of this shooting at the time. It was a terrorist act, but without a terrorist organization behind him. This attack took place just 32 days before the bombing of the World Trade Center. The man who would one day be known worldwide as Ramzi Youssef was born Abdul Basit Abdul Karim on April 27, 1968 to a family of Pakistani immigrants living in Kuwait. Because he is best known by his nom de guerre and because the U.S. government used that name to criminally charge him, he will be referred to as Ramzi Youssef throughout this series. Though Khalid Sheikh Mohammed was his uncle, the two of them were only about three years apart in age and grew up together. Once, they climbed the flagpole of their elementary school and tore down the Kuwaiti flag. Here's journalist Terry McDermott, co-author of the book, The Hunt for KSM. It starts with Yusuf, who is KSM's nephew. KSM was the youngest of a big family, and mm-hmm. Ramsey was the oldest of a big family, so they kind of overlapped. Um, and so they, they grew up together in Kuwait. They would eventually go their separate ways for college. Yusuf went to the Swansea Institute in Wales in 1986. Three years later, he graduated with a degree in electronic engineering and returned to Kuwait. According to Steve Call's book, Ghost Wars, he got a job as a communications engineer in the National Computer Center at Kuwait's Ministry of Planning. August 2nd, 1990, Ramsey Yusuf's life and career, and those of everyone else in Kuwait, are interrupted by the Iraqi invasion. His family packs up everything and leaves for Pakistan. According to the Washington Post, Ramzi Yusuf leaves for Pakistan on August 26th. According to Steve Call, not long after his return to Pakistan, Ramzi Yusuf decides to try his hand at jihad. He had an uncle in Peshawar, who was the regional manager for a Kuwait-based charity. By late 1990, Yusuf had crossed the border into Afghanistan, where he went for training at a camp called Khaldun. According to the book The Arabs at War in Afghanistan, by Afghan Jihad veteran Mustafa Hamid and former counterterrorism analyst Leah Faral, Khaldun was a camp in Coast, first associated with the Services Bureau. Later on, after the demise of the organization, the camp was run by Ibn al-Sheikh al-Libi and Abu Zubaydah. The camp could hold as many as 100 people at a time. According to Leah Faral, Khaldun would later train people going to Chechnya, quote, There was a back channel from Khaldun through to Turkey and then to Chechnya, via the links between Qatab, Abu Zubaydah, and a Kurd based in Turkey who worked with both of them. She also noted, quote, Khaldun was the location of choice for people wanting training for Chechnya, Algeria, and elsewhere, and had an extensive recruitment network that stretched through Europe and Turkey. It should be noted that this was not an Al-Qaeda-run camp. Mustafa Hamid says that during the period bin Laden was away from Afghanistan in the early to mid-90s, he and Al-Qaeda lost influence, to the point where some people thought he had retired from jihad. During this period, Khaldun trained people who were going to Chechnya, Bosnia, and Algeria. According to the 9-11 Commission report, quote, Khaldun and Darunta were terrorist training camps in Afghanistan controlled by Abu Zubaydah. While the camps were not Al-Qaeda facilities, Abu Zubaydah had an agreement with bin Laden to conduct reciprocal recruiting efforts 
whereby promising trainees at the camps could be invited to join Al-Qaeda. Several graduates of the Khaldun camp went on to other terror plots in the years after Ramzi Youssef was there. One was Ahmed Ressam, the Algerian who plotted to attack Los Angeles International Airport with explosives as part of the Millennium Plot. Another was Raed Hijazi, the California-born Palestinian who was part of a plot to attack a series of targets in Jordan, which was broken up about a month before the Millennium. Both of these plots will be covered in greater detail in a future episode. Most notably, a declassified CIA report states that three of the future 9-11 muscle hijackers, Khalid al-Midar, Majin Moked, and Satam al-Sukami, all of them from Saudi Arabia, received training at Khaldun. Back to Ramzi Youssef, he trained at Khaldun for six months, learning weapons tactics, basic explosives, and military maneuvers, according to Steve Call. He would later go on to what Call described as a, quote, graduate-level camp for bomb makers, where he would learn to apply his electronics education to making remote-controlled bombs. He also learned bombing techniques developed at border camps controlled by Pakistani intelligence. These camps had been supplied with timers and plastic explosives by the CIA during the 80s. According to Call, Yusuf carried out a few attacks in Afghanistan, not because he wanted to fight in their civil war, but, quote, mainly to experiment. In 1991, Yusuf goes back to Pakistan, where he gets married. This is how Ramzi Yusuf is described by a former FBI agent on the Joint Terrorism Task Force and by the former U.S. attorney who prosecuted him. Did you ever meet him personally? Yeah. What was your impression? You know, interesting, interesting guy. Uh, you know, s smart. Uh, I'm not saying intellect, but he was, you know, smart. But he was a, he was a people person. He was um, friendly, a sense of humor. Easygoing. What was Ramzi Youssef like as a person? Can you, for anybody who's, for people who never get to see him or or meet him or uh, have any 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 contact with him, what was he like? Well, I had a ten I had a tendency while I was a prosecutor to engage in lots of chit chat with my defendants during the course of trials. This trial lasted from July until November, um, and um, Youssef. I think looking at all that he had done, um, including the Manila plot, which was to blow up several um, airliners as they crossed the Pacific Ocean, for which he had already been convicted by that time. I mean, he, he was a personification of evil. Um, but all that having been said, he was pretty personable and liked to, um, liked to chat a, bit, a bunch in the courtroom. According to a court document, the conspiracy to bomb the World Trade Center began in the spring of 1992 when Ramzi Youssef met Ahmed Mohammed Ajaj at the previously mentioned Camp Khaldun. Ajaj was a Palestinian, born in Jerusalem and raised in the West Bank. His lawyers claimed that his family home near Hebron was bulldozed to make room for an Israeli settlement and that his family of 15 was forced to relocate to Jerusalem. They allege he was repeatedly detained, beaten, and imprisoned until he was eventually deported to Jordan in 1991. Ajaj claimed he had been tortured by the Israeli army and applied for political asylum when he first came to the United States on September 9, 1991. During that time, he had been working as a pizza delivery man in Houston, Texas, where he had family. He skipped his scheduled asylum hearing and left for Pakistan under an assumed name. Ajaj and Yusuf flew to New York City on September 1st of that year. In his luggage, Ajaj was carrying what a federal judge described as a, quote, terrorist kit, which included bomb-making manuals. 
When they arrived at John F. Kennedy International Airport, Immigration and Naturalization Service inspectors found that Ajaj was traveling under a forged Swedish passport. They found in his possession four passports and four different names, two identification cards, two notebooks, handwritten notes on explosives, six printed bomb-making manuals with blue covers, two instructional videotapes on making explosives, anti-American and anti-Israeli materials, and documents relating to false identities. Ajaj was arrested on the spot. Investigators later found Ramsey used his fingerprints on two of the manuals he had in his possession. Another question that came up after his arrest, how does a pizza delivery man afford a $2,500 one-way first-class ticket from Pakistan to New York? Ajaj was arrested and subsequently pled guilty to a charge of passport fraud. He received a six-month prison sentence, but even that didn't stop him from assisting with the plot. While incarcerated, he used a friend in Dallas to act as a middleman to communicate with Yusuf without tipping off law enforcement. After the bombing, investigators put together a criminal case tying a judge to the conspiracy to attack the World Trade Center. The federal government's indictment would later allege that the manuals a judge was carrying were meant for use in making the bomb for the attack. He was released from prison on March 1st, only to be arrested again eight days later in connection with the bombing. Back at JFK, Yusuf was stopped and questioned separately. He told INS inspectors he was traveling alone and presented an Iraqi passport with a fake name Ramzi Ahmed Yusuf, which he had bought in Peshawar for $100. He didn't have a visa to enter the United States, which he explained by saying a contact from the Iraqi consulate in Pakistan had helped him to get on the plane. He requested political asylum in the United States, claiming that he was in danger in his home country because the regime thought he had ties to the Kuwaiti government. Yusuf filled out the asylum forms and a sworn statement to support them. He was granted entry into the United States with an asylum hearing appointment. He was also allowed to clear customs because his connection to a judge was not known to the INS inspectors. Yusuf went straight to the Al-Farouk Mosque in Brooklyn, which had been the branch office of Abdullah Azam's Services Bureau during the Soviet-Afghan War. According to the Associated Press, prior to 1990, the mosque had been home to Al-Kifa, which it described as, quote, a global organization that raised money for the militant Islamic Mujahideen fighting Soviet forces in Afghanistan. Yusuf would eventually meet Mohammed Salameh and Abdul Yassin, who would both become co-conspirators in the World Trade Center plot. Yusuf moved into Salameh's home in Jersey City, but it didn't give him or anyone else in the plot his real name, or the Ramsey Yusuf alias he had used to enter the country. To them, he was only known as Rashid. Yusuf's choice of the World Trade Center as a target can be traced through a conversation he had with Abdul Hakim Murad, a childhood friend from Kuwait. At the time, Murad was in the United States working to get his license as a commercial pilot. Murad shared Yusuf's dislike of Israel, says journalist and author Terry McDermott. The idea to buy the World Trade Center came from uh, Hakim Murad. I mean, Ramsey was in New York looking for places to bomb. Right? He, he went there without a, really a plan. Or anybody to help him, yeah. right? He he recruited all. And the judge got a, and the judge got busted at customs. Yeah, Murad tells Ramsey, you know, Ramsey asks him what would make be a good target, and and Murad says, well, the World Trade Center, there's lots of Jews work there, so it's just off the cuff kind of stuff. According to Terry McDermott's book Perfect Soldiers, Yusuf's original concept for the bomb was a device that would release a cyanide cloud into the World Trade Center ventilation system, poisoning everyone inside. He didn't have enough money to build that device, so he settled on a fertilizer bomb, which McDermott called, quote, 
the most inexpensive model he could conceive. McDermott explains how the finances drove the plot. The planning, he said this himself, the planning of the the first World Trade Center bombing, they, they decided to, to place the bomb when they ran out of money. <laughs> that was, it wasn't like they had a schedule. They ran out of money to build the bomb any bigger, and so they took it to the World Trade Center. By October of 1992, Salome and another conspirator, Nidal Ayad, a chemical engineer by profession, were beginning the process of obtaining the chemicals they would need for the bomb. Salome rented out a storage shed to house all the bomb-making materials. According to the 9-11 Commission, Ramzi Youssef and Khalid Sheikh Mohammed kept in touch throughout the fall of 1992. They had several conversations about the progress of the plot, and Youssef asked his uncle for money. On November 3rd, Mohammed sent a $660 wire transfer from Qatar to Mohammed Salome's bank account. This bid of financing was KSM's only involvement in the 1993 World Trade Center bombing, but it would draw the attention of American intelligence and law enforcement officials down the road. According to a court document, while the bomb was being built, Salome and Youssef kept in contact with the blind sheikh, Omar Abdul Rahman, and Ibrahim al Gabrani, cousin of El-Sayed Nasser, Meyer Kahani's assassin. According to McDermott, while Yusuf wasn't building the bomb, he was out and about scouting for potential targets. With that in mind, he drove around Brooklyn because he had heard that Jews lived there. The plot was conceived entirely by Ramzi Yusuf, who later said his goal had been to kill a quarter of a million people by knocking one tower over into the other. Although he was originally from Pakistan, his motive was to avenge what he saw as the suffering of the Palestinians at the hands of Israel, with backing from the United States. At some point in December of 1992, Yusuf contacted Iyad Ismoil, who was living in Dallas, Texas at the time. Ismoil would later join Yusuf and the others in New York City on February 22nd to help complete the bomb preparations. In late December, Salome and Yusuf rented a ground floor apartment in Jersey City and moved in shortly after. Between January and February, they would mix the chemicals for the bomb in this apartment, following the instructions in the judge's manuals. Once the explosives were ready, they were placed in storage in the rented shed. January 16, 1993, the blind sheikh tells his followers, quote, We must be terrorists, during a sermon at his Brooklyn mosque. He continues, quote, We must terrorize the enemies of Islam, and frighten them, and disturb them, and shake the earth under their feet. In February, Nidal Ayad, the chemical engineer, used his employment as cover to order additional chemicals. He also obtained hydrogen gas to increase the destructive power of the bomb. In mid-February, Ayad would rent a car on two separate occasions to drive it into the parking garage under the World Trade Center on a scouting run. Salome was listed as an additional driver on the paperwork both times. February 23, 1993, Mohammed Salome rents a yellow Ryder Ford Econoline cargo van. He gave the rental company his name, but Ibrahim Elka Brownie's address. On February 25th, Salome contacts police to report the van has been stolen, presumably to establish an alibi. However, the paper he gave had an inaccurate license number for the van. Without this information, police could not file a stolen vehicle report. In reality, the bomb was being loaded into the van. February 26, 1993. It was a cold February day in New York City. The expected high for that Friday was 27 degrees. It's hard to imagine an international terrorist sleeping in on the day of an attack, but it happened. Ramzi Yusuf overslept several hours, and his co-conspirators let him. Having loaded the bomb into the van the day before, Iyad Ismail drove it to the World Trade Center in Lower Manhattan. Ramzi Yusuf rode with him. 
Mohammed Salome was following them in a rented Chevy Corsica that would serve as their getaway car. There were an estimated 50,000 people in the entire World Trade Center complex that day. At the time of the attack, many were at their jobs or on their lunch break nearby. There were six underground parking levels in the garage, which could hold as many as 2,000 cars. Ismail drove the van into the garage and left it on the B2 level. Yusuf set the timer on the bomb. They had about seven minutes to get out of the garage. They got in the getaway car and, according to Terry McDermott, quote, got trapped behind a cargo truck for several agonizing minutes in the basement. They made it out with moments to spare. At this hour, more than 500 rescue workers are there on the scene of a massive underground explosion that ripped through the World Trade Center just after noon today, killing five, injuring at least 500. At 12.18 p.m., the 1,300-pound bomb detonated, creating a hole 200 feet by 100 feet, six stories deep. It was so powerful, it blew a 3,000-pound steel beam 30 feet into one World Trade Center and almost toppled the Visit Hotel, which was located directly above the blast area. According to the 9-11 Memorial Museum, people on the top floors of the towers and in surrounding buildings felt the force of the explosion. Six people were killed and more than a thousand were injured. According to Terry McDermott, the bomb itself cost approximately $3,000 to build. The explosion caused an estimated half a billion dollars in damages to the World Trade Center complex. Mathematically, that is a 166,000-fold return on Yusef's investment. This is how Frank Pellegrino, a member of the Joint Terrorism Task Force, remembers that day. Well, it was a winter day. It was cold out. It was kind of a slushy snow falling. And, uh, you know, it was right around 12, 1230 when uh, the people, some people felt something. I, I was in the office on, yeah, what floor was on, a 23rd floor or something. And uh, the rumors started going around that there was a, some kind of explosion that occurred at the Trade Center and everybody thought it was a transformer and uh, but everybody was told to hang out until they made sure what it was. Boy, it wasn't till late in the, after late in the afternoon, only a couple hours later, everybody was saying, the bosses were saying that uh, you know, nobody should go home because uh, this very well could be a bombing. So I think they knew pretty quickly at least some of the city bomb detectives must have realized, even just from the damage and the and the smell and everything else, that it was uh, that it was an explosive device. Uh, so, you know, that night, uh, I guess it was eight nine o'clock. They they saw people can go back home, and the next day you come in, and they were going to schedule uh, you know twelve hour shifts to figure out. Uh, 12 on, 12 off, until this thing was figured out. According to congressional testimony several years later, the bomb was made with an explosive compound known as urea nitrate, the same compound that a judge's bomb-making manual instructed how to make. The manuals also had formulas and instructions for how to make ammonium nitrate dynamite, which is the material that served as a detonator for the World Trade Center bomb. Former FBI agent Ken Maxwell described what he saw at the site of the explosion. Well, it, it was an incredible amount of damage. The crater that had been uh, formed that went, you know, down through several floors uh, was just uh, a sight to see. I was surprised there weren't many more killed based upon the devastation that I saw that morning. Of course, the smell was still fresh in the air of the explosion. It made an indelible 
mark in in my memory, uh, you know, seeing that scene down there and knowing that there was a, a whole different ball. I mean, I had been at bombing scenes before in my career, but I had never seen one as devastating the, as this. It was later discovered that part of Ajaj's studies in Pakistan included an instructional videotape whose opening scene showed a van crashing into the front of a U.S. embassy. Once inside, the suicide terrorist driving the van detonates a bomb, destroying the embassy. The video, which was in Ajaj's possession when he was arrested at JFK International Airport, continues with a demonstration on how to make several types of explosives. This is a chilling predictor of events to come five years later. A judge saw and studied this tape before the Africa Embassy bombings. Both of those attacks were carried out by suicide terrorists driving trucks loaded with explosives. They will be discussed in greater detail in the next episode. The investigation into the World Trade Center bombing involved as many as 700 FBI agents all over the world. Investigators got their first break a few hours after the explosion. They discovered a vehicle identification number on a piece of the wreckage found amidst the rubble. Known colloquially as a VIN, Carfax describes it as a unique 17-character code that is assigned to every car, van, truck, or motorcycle made since 1981 that has been sold in the United States. The FBI traced the number to the Ryder Rental Agency that owned the van rented out by Mohammed Salome. You will recall that he had previously tried to report the van as stolen. Salome went back to the rental office several hours after the explosion in an effort to get his $400 deposit back, an effort which was unsuccessful because he did not have a police report. He agreed to come back with one. Years later, co-conspirator Abdul Rahman Yazin said there was no escape plan after the bombing. He told 60 Minutes correspondent Leslie Stahl, quote, No, there was no specific plan. Ramzi Youssef did the operation and ran off. He left the others to their fate. He did not care, he just left. On the night of February 26, Ramzi Youssef and Iyad Ismail both took flights out of the country to Pakistan and Jordan respectively. They would be criminally indicted for their roles in the bombing on March 31, 1983 and August 4, 1984 respectively. Ismail would later be apprehended by Jordanian authorities in July of 1995. He was subsequently extradited to the United States to stand trial. March 1, 1993. Remember Ramzi Youssef's accomplice and travel partner Ahmed Ajaj? Two days after the World Trade Center bombing, he was released from prison for completing his six-month sentence for entering the United States with a forged passport the previous September. Eight days later, he was arrested again by Immigration and Naturalization Service agents. Because he had a pending immigration detention order, he should not have been released from prison in the first place. Two months later, federal prosecutors charged him for his role in the World Trade Center bombing. March 2, 1993. Four days after the bombing, Mahmoud Abu Halima leaves the country on a flight bound for Jeddah, Saudi Arabia, with a ticket he had bought the day after the bombing. From there, he travels to his native Egypt. He was captured there by local authorities. It would be returned to the United States within three weeks. According to journalist Jane Mayer's book, The Dark Side, when the United States government asked for Abu Halima's extradition, the Egyptians handed him over, quote, wrapped head to toe in duct tape, like a mummy. March 4th, 1993. Remember Mohammed Salome, the criminal mastermind who went back to the rental agency to recover a $400 deposit hours after the bombing? He bought a plane ticket on March 1st to go to Amsterdam, but before leaving the country, he went back to the rental agency again on March 4th to get his deposit back. This time, he was arrested by an FBI team that was waiting for him. Once Mohammed Salome's name came up in the records, 
FBI agent John Antisef and New York police detective Louis Napoli, members of the Joint Terrorism Task Force, made the connection to the terror cell that they had been monitoring for more than a year. We'll get back to that in a few minutes. Back to the story of Salome and the van deposit, this is one of the most baffling incidents in the entire story. Salome would have likely gotten away if he had just let the money go. Why risk it all for $400? Three former FBI agents and a former federal prosecutor offered their takes. I think Stone. they do it on purpose subconsciously. Ah, that, that could, that could very, there could be an element of that. My, um, old criminology, my old criminology professor, Fred Montanino, said that. Hmm. He, said to you, he said, you're not going to believe this and you're not going to like it. He said, but I need you to open up your heart and your mind to understand that all criminals want to get caught. It's a crying out for help. It's a crying out for, look at me, look at me. It's a crying out for attention. I mean, that's why they leave clues. We, we used to joke about that a little bit, and that either, either he was uh, the Silas Marner of Al-Qaeda, you know, that wanted his, uh, his money back. He was driven by his personal avarice uh, and thought that was a, you know, a sum of money that he didn't want to lose, um, combined with just the arrogance, you know, stupidity and arrogance, two dangerous combinations uh, that uh, almost, you know, they, they had carried out the attack and we're not going to get caught type of attitude. And, and uh, therein, it, it really is a, a personal error on, on his part. I don't really think he gave it a lot of thought that, uh, you know, the, the trail would lead to him or the, through the U-Haul truck where, where it was rented. So it was, it was a, a classic example of the combination of stupidity and arrogance. I know I've heard different things. Uh, you know, it may have been that he didn't, he didn't have enough money for a, an airplane ticket. Um, that's the only reasonable thing I could think of. But He already had a flight ticket to go to Amsterdam, I think, didn't he? Yeah, I think he had a child's ticket, though. And, and if he was going to... I. I I think the only way to, to make that an adult ticket, you would have to pay whatever extra uh, he had. It again it seems to me that seems to be somewhat of an explanation. Although you know, you would have to imagine that if you're planning to do this, that <laughs> I mean, you get your money ready for your ticket before you actually uh, light the fuse. For heaven's sake! Really good uh, question. In fact, I lost a case at Guinness over that. We were sitting in 26 Fed the building that housed the FBI, it was late at night. And we had, by that point, reconstructed the Ryder van as being at, you know, the, the center point of ground zero and had identified it as having been rented from a Ryder van outlet in Jersey City, the proprietor of which said that uh, Salome was going to be coming in the next day to reclaim his deposit, having claimed that the van had been stolen and I bet a detective that he would never show. <laughs> so I couldn't, I couldn't tell you why he came. I guess he was looking for money and thought that his story about what had happened to the van was, was a credible one. Um, but um, who knows? People do some crazy things. Within a matter of weeks after the bombing, the FBI had four of the plotters in custody. Abu Halima, Ajaj, Ayad, and Salome. Three others were still at large, Ismail, Yassin, and Youssef. FBI agent Frank Pellegrino was part of the team assigned to track down the man only known as Rashid at the beginning of the investigation. 
myself, uh, Brian Parr and Tom Kelly, Brian Parr from Secret Service, Tom Kelly from ATF, who were members of the task force who came over um, after the bombing, we were assigned fugitives. So there was one guy, Abdul Rahman Yassin, and uh, one who turned out to be Ramzi Yosef, who at the time we only knew as a guy named Rashid. So we were assigned to find out what we could about these two people. Pellegrino will spend much of the next two years pursuing leads on Ramzi Youssef all over the world. So Ramzi is, I guess, before Osama bin Laden, I guess, the, the, during this, I guess this two-year period, he's on the run before he ultimately gets caught. Would it be fair to say that he was probably the most wanted terrorist in the FBI, on the FBI uh, radar? Oh, sure. I mean, uh, he was the face of, you know, he was the bin Laden before bin Laden was bin Laden. You know, in, in the public eye, he was the guy who did the World Trade Center bombing and he was the fugitive that got away. And, uh, you know, every time something happened overseas, everybody assumed it was Ramsey Yosef who did it. So, um, you know, we, he was quickly put on the top 10. Um, and, you know, I think I think that's right. He was he probably was the, the most well-known top 10 uh, uh, at the time. Yeah. Remember the address Mohammed Salome gave to rent the van? Information obtained by federal agents serving a search warrant on El Gabrani's home would eventually lead to the arrest of several accomplices. El Gabrani himself was stopped and frisked by federal agents outside the home while the search was ongoing. According to a court document, he became belligerent and assaulted two FBI agents. When agents searched him, they found in his possession five fraudulent Nicaraguan passports and birth certificates with photos of El Sayed Nasser, Nasser's wife, and their children. Abdul Rahman Yasin was questioned by the FBI on March 4, 1983. Thinking he would be a cooperative witness, the FBI released him. The next day, he flew to Jordan, the first stop on his way to his father's home country of Iraq. He was later indicted for his role in the bombing. 60 Minutes tracked him down to a prison in Iraq in 2002 and interviewed him. Correspondent Leslie Stahl asked him what the decision to change the target to the World Trade Center had to do with Ramzi Yusuf's stated original intent of killing Jews. Yasin responded saying, quote, The majority of the people who work in the World Trade Center are Jews. At the time, the circumstances of Yasin's escape were cited by the Bush administration as evidence that Iraqi dictator Saddam Hussein might have been involved in the 1993 World Trade Center bombing. Yasin denied this. According to ABC News, the United States was unable to find him after the 2003 invasion and occupation of Iraq. March 4, 1994, after a five-month criminal trial, the grand jury convicts Nidal Ayad, Mahmoud Abu Halima, Ahmed Ajaj, and Mohammed Salome on 38 counts in connection with the World Trade Center bombing. Ramzi Youssef and Abdul Rahman Yasin were indicted in the case, but had fled the country after the bombing and were at large at the time. Though he was not indicted for the bombing, media and law enforcement attention shifted to Omar Abdul Rahman, the cleric and spiritual leader of the Al Farouk Mosque. He was also known as the Blind Sheikh because of a case of childhood diabetes that robbed him of his sight. A Reuters obituary described him as, quote, the face of radical Islam in the 1980s and 1990s. According to the New York Times, the Egyptian-born cleric had memorized the Quran in Braille at age 11. He studied at Al-Azhar University in Cairo, where he met and befriended a Palestinian doctoral student named Abdullah Azam. 
According to journalist and author Lawrence Wright, some Islamists in Egypt during the 70s were bankrolling their activism with criminal activity, shaking down businesses owned by Coptic Christians or storming Coptic weddings to rob the guests. Wright points out that radical Islamist theology requires a fatwa, a religious ruling, to consecrate otherwise criminal actions. He writes, quote, Sheikh Omar obligingly issued fatwas that countenanced the slaughter of Christians and the plunder of Coptic jewelry stores on the premise that a state of war existed between Christians and Muslims. During the 80s, he traveled to Afghanistan to preach to Islamists fighting against the Soviets. It was through his preaching during this period that he eventually meets Osama bin Laden. Omar Abdel Rahman made his way to New York in 1990. He had fled to Sudan where he received a tourist visa from the U.S. Embassy, this in spite of the fact that he was on the State Department's list of people with ties to terrorist groups. The New York Times later reported that Abdel Rahman's visa application was approved by unidentified CIA officers, this in spite of the fact that the CIA's own files described him as, quote, Egypt's most militant Sunni cleric and a close associate of the Egyptian Jihad movement. The visa decision was blamed on a computer error, but the mistake was made worse a year later. Somehow, he was given a green card, which granted him permanent residency in the United States. According to Reuters, the green card was revoked in 1992 when officials discovered that he had lied about a bad check charge in Egypt and about having two wives when he entered the United States. At the time of the World Trade Center bombing, he was under threat of being deported. By that point, he had already been under FBI scrutiny for almost three years. July 1989. According to a court document, law enforcement was monitoring a group of Omar Abdel Rahman's followers as early as one year before the blind sheikh moved to the United States. According to the documentary Road to 9-11, New York police detective Louis Napoli received a tip from a source. An imam at the Al-Farouk Mosque in Brooklyn wanted to buy 25,000 rounds of ammunition for AK-47s per month. Napoli was a member of the Joint Terrorism Task Force, where he was partnered with FBI agent John Antasef. When they checked out the mosque, they saw flyers advocating for Muslims to learn how to use firearms. They set up a surveillance team to see where people would go from the mosque. During three consecutive weekends in July of 1989, federal agents monitored and photographed El Sayyid Nasser, Mahmoud Abu Halima, Mohammed Salome, and Ida Layad firing AK-47s at a gun range in Long Island. Omar Abdel Rahman was still in Egypt at this point, but Nosair and Abu Halima would call him with updates on their military training and discuss other issues which they would record on cassettes and circulate amongst the Sheikh's followers. Why is this significant? Because El Sayyid Nasser would kill Meir Kahane the following year. The other three men would later be implicated as accomplices in the 1993 World Trade Center bombing. The FBI had all four of them under surveillance before any of them had committed their crimes. They had not done anything illegal at that point. All of their firearms were legally obtained. The thinking at the time, according to Agent Antasef, was that they wanted to recruit fighters for the Mujahideen in Afghanistan. It might have been a moot point by the summer of 1989. Remember, the last Soviet forces had withdrawn from the country in February of that year, some five months earlier. It was only until after the Kahani assassination that the Joint Terrorism Task Force went back and looked at the photos from the weekend trips to the gun range. It was at that point that they realized that Kahani's assassin had been part of the group that they were monitoring. El Sayyid Nasser was already in custody and awaiting trial at that point. But the idea of three other possibly like-minded men trained to use firearms was enough to raise alarms. The FBI needed an informant on the inside. What they got was almost too good to be true. Emad Salem was a former Egyptian army officer who had immigrated to the United States. 
who at the time was working as the head of security at a New York City hotel. An FBI agent approached him and asked for information about Russian guests staying at the hotel. He helped the agent. That agent later introduced him to Agent Antisef and Detective Napoli. When they showed Salem a photograph of the blind Sheikh and asked him if he recognized him, he knew all too well, going back to his days in Egypt. He also had something of a personal axe to grind with the Sheikh. Remember that fatwa the Sheikh authored a decade earlier that some believe provided religious cover for the people who wanted to assassinate Anwar Sadat? Salem told the History Channel he had been part of Sadat's security detail the day of the assassination, having been three to four hundred feet away from the stage where the president was murdered. The FBI asked Salem to get as close to Nasser's followers as he could. His cover was that he was an ex-Green Beret, currently working as a jeweler who did some electronic surveillance part-time. When asked why he was willing to take on this dangerous undercover assignment, Salem said, quote, This is my choice. I choose to live in America. I was born without a choice in Egypt, but when I chose to live in America, then this is my America. And nobody will mess with my America. Make no mistake about that. Salem began his undercover work in November of 1991, around the time of Nasser's trial for the murder of Meir Kahane. Outside of the courtroom, he met with several of Nasser's supporters and his cousin, Ibrahim El-Gabrani, who was raising money for Nasser's legal defense fund. Over time, he ingratiated himself with El-Gabrani. This eventually led to an invitation to meet with Nasser himself at Rikers Island, where he was incarcerated at the time. Former journalist John Miller told the History Channel that during the Nasser trial, El-Gabrani traveled to Peshawar at some point in the early 90s. While he was there, he met with Osama bin Laden and brought back an estimated $20,000 for Nasser's legal defense. Astonishingly, Nasser was acquitted in state court for the murder of Meir Kahane. The jury felt that the police had not preserved enough evidence from the attack, a verdict the judge found devoid of common sense and logic. Nasser was convicted of gun possession and assault, for which he was given the maximum sentence. In the meantime, Salem continued to earn the trust of Nasser's circle. Elka Brownie asked him to build a dozen pipe bombs, most of which would be sent to synagogues in Brooklyn and Queens. One was saved for Alvin Schlesinger, the judge who presided over Nasser's trial and sentenced him. Another was meant for Dov Hickent, the then assemblyman from Brooklyn. A third was for then U.S. Senator Alphonse D'Amato. Some of these targets were suggested by Nasser himself when people went to visit him in prison at Rikers Island. After every meeting, without wearing a wire or being able to take notes, Salem would go and report everything from memory to his FBI handlers. El-Gabrani eventually asked Salem to switch from the dozen pipe bombs in favor of a bigger bomb, one that Salem would compare to the one later used in Oklahoma City. As the plot got more serious, the FBI wanted Salem to wear a wire. He refused, out of fear that once he was forced to testify publicly in court, his sister living in Egypt would be in danger at the hands of the blind sheikh's followers there. At a seeming impasse, the FBI terminated its relationship with Ahmad Salem in July of 1992, two months before Ramzi Youssef arrived at JFK International Airport. The World Trade Center bombing happened during the period Salem was no longer working for the Bureau. In retrospect, it was a blunder. The FBI had let go of an informant it had placed inside the cell, who might have been able to warn them of the plot. FBI agent Ken Maxwell was a member of a joint terrorism task force at the time. There was a great deal of consternation. Uh, I know the agents and detectives who handled that informant, and they're um, uh, very, very professional. And uh, they were very upset at uh, having to close this informant out based upon some what one might term uh, 
the bureaucracy, red tape. And, you know, I'll, I'll leave it there. Hindsight is always 2020. You know, certainly um, had that, had the, they've been allowed to continue operating that informant, uh, things may have been different. After the bombing, the FBI contacted Salam and he resumed his work as an informant. This time, he agreed to wear a wire because the FBI was working with the State Department to get his sister out of Egypt and into the United States, where she would be placed in the government's witness protection program. Salem eventually earned the complete trust of the blind sheikh, to the point where the sheikh asked him to pledge bayah, which the Oxford Dictionary of Islam defines as, quote, an oath of allegiance to a leader. Despite the fact that several of his followers had been arrested in connection with the World Trade Center bombing, the Sheikh held press conferences denying any involvement. Sometime after the World Trade Center bombing, Salem was commiserating about the situation with Sadiq Ali, a Sudanese member of the cell. Frustrated with the arrests of their associates, Sadiq tells Salem, quote, We have to do something serious, very soon, and floats the idea of blowing up the military armory in Manhattan. A few days later, Ali comes back with a chilling list of possible targets. The United Nations, the Lincoln Tunnel, the Holland Tunnel, the George Washington Bridge, the Statue of Liberty, and 26 Federal Plaza, the federal government building in Lower Manhattan, which is home to the FBI's New York field office. Salem reports this information back to the FBI and begins collecting evidence against Ali and the rest of the cell. They start surveilling the potential targets, 26 Federal Plaza, the Statue of Liberty, and the tunnels. Inside the FBI, the investigation is known by the name Terror Stop, T-E-R-R-S-T-O-P. They set up a safe house in Queens, rigged with hidden microphones and cameras for a sting operation against the cell. In time, they had surveillance footage of cell members bringing barrels of fuel to the safe house to be used for the bombs, and they were able to get everyone's fingerprints. For public safety, the FBI would come to the safe house during overnight hours and take out the real explosive materials and replace them with fakes that did not pose a risk of exploding. Over time, the FBI accumulated evidence to implicate everyone in the cell, but they were still coming up short on the blind shake himself. On the night of May 23, 1993, Salem had a private conversation with the blind shake. Salem told him that he and Sadiq Ali were planning to, quote, do a job and explicitly asked about attacking the United Nations. Quote, I wish to know, in regards to the United Nations, do we consider it the house of the devil? Because my strike is a devastating one, not a screw-up like the one that took place at the Trade Center. Abdel Rahman responded, quote, not illicit, however, will be bad for Muslims. Then he added, quote, find a plan to inflict damage on the American army itself, but the United Nations will be a disadvantage for the Muslims. It will harm them deeply. So forget about the United Nations? No. We keep it in the army? Yes. Salam then asked about striking the FBI field office in New York. The Sheikh told him to, quote, wait a while, and to, quote, plan carefully. It was what the FBI was looking for. Abdel Rahman giving his explicit blessing for his followers to carry out terrorist attacks against specific targets. Meanwhile, Salam continued to gather evidence against the other members of the cell as they tried to procure cars, weapons, and explosives for the plot. June 23, 1993. The plotters meet at the Queen's safe house that evening before the electronic eyes and ears of the FBI rigged throughout the property. They begin filling 55-gallon oil drums with fuel oil and what they think is ammonium nitrate fertilizer. According to journalist Tim Wiener's History of the FBI, Enemies, Salem had supplied them with $150 worth of Scott's Super Turf Builder, a fertilizer with no explosive force. 
At 2 a.m. on June 24th, the FBI raided the safe house and arrested the plotters in addition to seizing the evidence found at the scene. They had broken up what would have been the deadliest day in the history of New York City. July 2nd, 1993, the blind sheikh surrenders to federal agents. A blind Islamic cleric is in police custody in New York tonight. Sheikh Omar Abdel Rahman became widely known after the World Trade Center bombing last February. His name came up again last week when investigators uncovered a terrorist plot to plant bombs at several New York locations and assassinate some prominent politicians. Most importantly, they were able to implicate the blind sheikh in the conspiracy because the plotters had sought his religious seal of approval for the targets. Former NSC Senior Director for Counterterrorism Stephen Simon explains why getting the sheikh's approval was so important. I think the, the key thing here is that there was a sacral uh, dimension uh, to these attacks. You know, they were regarded as, um, as pious acts, uh, pious acts carried out uh, in response to uh, divine um, guidance and to some extent for the glorification of God, I suppose. So um, the, the centrality of, uh, of clerical approval and, and blessing was, was really undeniable. I mean, they, if, if you were going to do it, uh, it, it needed to be approved uh, by a cleric who would, who would um, make clear that, uh, that you were acting uh, in, a, in a kind of religious mode and with divine authority uh, behind you. So it's a powerfully motivating thing, um, but also in a sense a limiting factor in the targeting because um, uh, just as one would be obligated uh, to uh, carry out an attack approved by a cleric, um, uh, if a cleric hadn't approved an attack, well, then you wouldn't be authorized to carry it out. Um, so uh, it did have that limiting effect. But the, but, but the key thing was the sacred nature of the attack. During the criminal trial, prosecutors alleged a broader conspiracy, beginning with the Kahani assassination, continuing with the World Trade Center bombing, and leading up to the foiled landmarks plot. Central to the conspiracy in the prosecution's case is what was dubbed the, quote, Day of Terror, five bombs that were supposed to destroy the United Nations, the Lincoln and Holland Tunnels, the George Washington Bridge, and 26 Federal Plaza. Salem was the prosecution's star witness. He was paid more than $1 million for his work as an informant. The blind sheikh was also implicated in an assassination plot against Egyptian President Hosni Mubarak during his visit to the United States, as well as plots against a New York State legislator and State Supreme Court Justice, both of whom were Jews. Omar Abdel Rahman and his nine co-defendants would eventually be convicted on 48 out of 50 charges in October of 1995. The blind sheikh was given a life sentence. All 10 defendants in the case were convicted of seditious conspiracy, a charge dating back to the Civil War. According to the New York Times, quote, In this case of plotting assassinations and bombings as part of a jihad, or holy war, to undermine United States support for Egypt, whose secular government is anathema to Mr. Abdul Rahman and his followers, and for Israel, a sworn enemy of many Islamic radicals. Even though the landmarks plot ultimately failed, 
What was its significance? Here's former National Security Council official Stephen Simon. As I recall, I think that the significance of it primarily was was in uh, first the way it reflected uh, jihadist ambition, uh, and secondly, uh, uh, how they did their their target selection. You know what uh, what interested them as targets. You know how did they uh, you know how did they define a good lucrative target. Abdul Rahman's imprisonment became a rallying cause for Islamists around the world. Ayman al-Zawahiri called on Egyptians to kidnap Americans as an effort to win his release. This echoes a presidential daily brief dated December 4, 1998, that mentioned possible intelligence that bin Laden and his allies were preparing an operation to hijack a U.S. airliner. The alleged motive was to negotiate the release of the blind sheikh and Ramzi Youssef from American prisons. Egyptian President Mohamed Morsi, a member of the Muslim Brotherhood, promised to work for Abdul Rahman's release from U.S. custody. But the mastermind of the World Trade Center bombing, Ramzi Youssef, was still at large. He flew out of the country to go back to Pakistan several hours after the bombing. On his way out of New York City, he mailed letters to local news organizations on behalf of the non-existent 5th Battalion in the Liberation Army, claiming responsibility for the attack. He signed the letter using two fake names. FBI agents went looking for the man his World Trade Center co-conspirators knew only as Rashid. In time, they would discover that he had left for Pakistan immediately after the attack, how he had entered the country, and even his real name. The United States government would eventually offer a $2 million reward for information leading to Ramzi Youssef's capture. Back in Pakistan, Youssef reconnected with his newly licensed pilot friend, Abdul Hakim Murad. Remember, it was Murad who suggested that Yusuf attack the World Trade Center. Yusuf convinced him to join the jihadist cause. Murad proposed another idea, loading a plane with explosives, which he himself would fly into the Pentagon or CIA headquarters. They moved to Lahore, where Yusuf taught Murad how to make explosives. In July of 1993, Yusuf makes a nearly fatal mistake when a detonator literally blows up in his face injuring an eye and both of his hands. He was partially blinded in his right eye, which was subsequently disfigured. According to the Washington Post, he spent an estimated two weeks undergoing treatment in two Karachi hospitals. Authorities say the bomb he was building was meant to be used to assassinate Pakistani Prime Minister Benazir Bhutto. This would not be the last time that Ramzi Youssef was careless in handling explosives. Summer of 1994. While much of the world's attention was focused on the World Cup and the O.J. Simpson saga taking place in the United States, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed and Ramzi Youssef each arrived separately in Manila, capital city of the Philippines. At the time, they were 29 and 26 years old respectively. Why there, of all places? Terry McDermott explains. The stated reason that they gave was that it was the cost of living was low. <laughs> uh, but there, there was sort of a an infrastructure there that they could take advantage of. There was an active insurgency in the Southern Philippines uh, that had connections to Manila. And there was an existing organization run by uh, Osama, one of Osama bin Laden's brothers-in-law based in Manila, uh, who could provide some sorts of support. Um, Southeast Asia generally had a pretty vibrant uh, Islamist movement underway in Indonesia, Malaysia, and Mindanao. Uh, so there were people they could take advantage of. 
Though he wasn't a spy, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed took some elements of spycraft very seriously. According to one report, he used as many as 30 different aliases while he was in the Philippines. Investigators who later retraced KSM's travels were surprised to discover the extent of them. South America, Africa, Europe, and Asia. Ramzi Youssef and Khalid Sheikh Mohammed were joined by Wali Khan Amin Shah, who KSM knew as a veteran of the Afghan Jihad. Khan was described by CIA analyst Michael Scheuer as, quote, Bin Laden's advance man in places Al-Qaeda was considering attacks. He moved into an apartment with a local bar girl he had met. Later on, they would move to a room in the Doña Josefa, a transient hotel whose significance will be explained shortly. Yusuf got himself a girlfriend who sold perfume at a local mall. Mohammed, Yusuf, and Khan would go out to shopping malls, hotel bars, and karaoke clubs. According to Terry McDermott, they paid local women to open cell phones and bank accounts on their behalf. They presented themselves as veterans of the Afghan war who were recovering. Not difficult to do, given Khan was missing three fingers from one hand and Yusuf's eye injury and scar both caused by accidents involving explosives. How did they reconcile their jihadist worldviews with their active dating lives? Terry McDermott and Frank Pellegrino offered their explanations. There are lots of uh, jihadis who have plenty of amorous affairs. Uh, you know, they don't, they're not, Ramsey in particular never struck me as being very religious at all. Khalid Sheikh was more so. I mean, his father was an imam and was raised in a religious household. You know, Islam allows you, when you're on the road, uh, in the, in the service of Allah, to do lots of stuff. I, so, I don't think it was it was a huge a diversion departure from their normal behavior. I think the the whole party board party boy part of it is is a little bit overdone in in, uh, in the public. I, I I mean, they certainly you know went to a, a few bars. They they actually. I mean, they used some of the girls over there to to get things they needed, like a bank account or a telephone and, and, and stuff like that. You know, I wouldn't. Uh, you know, I don't think they were. You know, I don't, I don't think they were running around all the. But I think I think they enjoyed it because I think I actually think both of them are very. The two of them are very engaging personalities, so I think they enjoyed the back and forth and the bullshit. But. Um, so, so I don't think they minded going out, but, but I, I, you know, I, I, I wouldn't put them that down as partiers per se. Ramzi Yusuf and his girlfriend moved into an apartment building called Tiffany Condominiums. Mohammed was a regular visitor for all the wrong reasons. The two of them used the Tiffany apartment as their personal chemistry lab, experimenting with different mixtures for a type of miniature bomb Yusuf was designing. When Yusuf left the country in September of 1994, Mohammed moved in. The two of them came up with an incredibly ambitious terrorist operation. The plot called for five men to place bombs on 12 US-based airliners with routes in Southeast Asia. Each accomplice would board a trans-Pacific flight in Southeast Asia, assemble a bomb on the plane, and get off of it at the first connecting stop, leaving the armed device on board. As the flights continued to their destinations, the devices on board would eventually detonate. 11 out of 12 flights that were targeted were bound for cities in the United States. It was dubbed the Bajinka Plan, supposedly the Serbo-Croatian word for big noise or big bang, according to media reports. This is incorrect. Deep in the footnotes of the 9-11 Commission report, KSM is cited describing Bajinka as, quote, a nonsense word he adopted after hearing it on the front lines in Afghanistan. Former FBI agent Frank Pellegrino offers this explanation. 
according to uh, my understanding, it was just the just the bullshit word that KSM used to use, and, and they used to throw it around. They used to call each other Bojinka. It was just kind of a word they used when they were goofing around. So they just used it on the plan. It was didn't mean anything. It was just it was a word that they were all familiar with because they all used to call each other that. You know. Yeah. They used to call each other Bojinka, kind of like a nickname word. They would just throw the word around. You know, the way it was explained to me is that it, it really didn't mean anything. It was just a nonsense word that KSM made up. Um, and then that was put on the on the plot. In order to pull off the plot, Ramsey Yusuf developed a new type of airplane bomb, whose main component was nitromethane, a cheap and easily available ingredient in the Philippines. Khalid Sheikh Mohammed booked a flight from Manila to Seoul, South Korea, so he could test the explosive materials against airport security measures. He filled 13 sealed bottles of contact lens solution with nitromethane and packed them into his carry-on bag. Yusuf had already successfully taken one bottle in his carry-on during a flight from Hong Kong to Taipei. He was also carrying a small metal bolt under the arch of his shoe and covered by a sock. This was meant to simulate a metal detonator to see if he could get it past security. Mohammed sets off alarms on a security scanner and is asked to undress. He takes off his shoes but leaves his socks on. He is allowed to pass through after airport security inspects his bag. Amazingly, he had left a detailed plan for the attacks inside of the carry-on bag, with a list of flights and the times each bomb was supposed to explode. Airport security ignored the plans, which presumably would have resulted in his arrest if they had known what they were, and asked him about the bottles of contact lens solution. Here's Terry McDermott. They made hundreds of mistakes, but uh, the security apparatus of the United States made hundreds more. Uh, we just weren't prepared whatsoever. Uh, they, they, yeah, you're right, they could have been caught any time. Khalid Sheikh Mohammed's test flight worked, but because he did not have a visa to enter South Korea, he was held at the airport for 10 hours before being sent back to Manila. The test had been successful as far as he was concerned. He flew back to Karachi and reported back to Yusuf. December 1st, 1994. Wally Khan Shah drives to a mostly empty Greenbelt Theater, located in a Manila shopping center. He places a small version of Yusuf's new explosive device under a seat and leaves. The bomb explodes, blowing up an empty seat and injuring a group of moviegoers. This is the first test run for Yusuf's new explosive. December 8, 1994. Yusuf and Mohammed move into apartment 603 at the Doña Josefa Hotel, this time for a very specific reason. The hotel faced President Carino Avenue, a major traffic artery that connected the Manila city center with the neighborhood where the Apostolic Nunciature was located. Nunciatures are the Vatican's embassies around the world. They're also where the Pope usually stays when he travels abroad. Ramzi Yusuf and KSM had a new plan, to assassinate Pope John Paul II during his upcoming visit to the Philippines, scheduled for the second week of January of 1995. The Pope would be staying at the Manila Nunciature while he was in the city, meaning that his motorcade would pass by the Doña Josefa Hotel at least once at some point. They later found out that Bill Clinton would be visiting the Philippines around the same time as the Pope, so they started planning ways to kill him too. Neither Yusuf nor Muhammad were known to have any particular dislike of the Catholic Church or the Pope. It has been reported that the Abu Sayyaf group, an Islamic insurgency based in the Philippines, had suggested the Pope as a target. Why target either leader then? To paraphrase the famous comment by mountain climber George Mallory, because they were there. Terry McDermott explains the improvisational nature of these hastily organized assassination plots. 
the Pope coming to the Philippines was a huge deal. It was oh. all over the newspapers. When he did come, it was the largest gathering in human history. I mean, go go look at photos of that thing. I mean, it's just a massive amount of people. So, I, you know, they, I, I think it was just a target of opportunity. And, and remember, the 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 place where the Pope stayed, the the papal nunciate, is right on the same road that there that the Dona Josefa apartment was. The, the the motorcade passed there numerous times, so it was it was right there in front of them. Or these guys were feral, right? I mean, it was just like let's go here and kill them. Let's go there and, and blow up that. Yeah, sure. Why not? Let's do that. It wasn't it wasn't the Pope personally. It's just that he happened to be there essentially. Yes. I mean, they also talked about killing Clinton, who was scheduled to come. I, I think uh, those were more aspirational than anything. Uh, but the, the the readiness to entertain these ideas without any really kind of foresight I, just indicates how amateur they, they are, they were. Frank Pellegrino says the interest in targeting the Pope may have gone beyond Ramsey, Yusuf, and KSM. They knew the Pope was coming uh, it was probably two things going on at once. I mean, Wally indicated, or there was information that Wally, uh, Wally Khan had kind of a separate interest in the, in the Pope situation. You know, Wally had more connections, a lot of connections back in Afghanistan. And, you know, if you go back to uh, John Miller's interview with Bin Laden, you'll hear him, you'll hear him talk about, uh, um, Abu Haider, which was a name used by uh, by Wally Khan. So, you know, Bin Laden knew Wally Khan. You know, I think Wally had some separate, was, was at least, because, you know, Wally had been in, in the Philippines, you know, training people down in the South, uh, some of the Abu Sayyaf groups. So we believe that Wally had some interest separate from Ramsey when it came to that. But then Ramsey came in and, and obviously was, was thinking the same thing. But then I just felt that they felt there was too much, uh, you know, too much security around. Besides two potential assassination plots, the Bajinka plan was still happening. The Doña Josefa apartment would also be converted into a makeshift bomb factory. December 11th, 1994, the second test run of Ramsey Yusuf's new explosive is set to take place. Yusuf books a ticket on Philippine Airlines Flight 434 from Manila to Tokyo. With a connecting stop in the Philippine city of Cebu, he armed the device during the flight and left it under seat 26K before getting off at Cebu. The bomb exploded during the second leg of the flight on the way to Tokyo, killing passenger Haruki Ikigami and injuring others. From Ramzi Yusuf's perspective, this test run was proof of the viability of his concept for the Bajinka plot. Here's former FBI agent Frank Pellegrino. I do recall Ramsey saying that, that when he did PAL Flight 434, that he didn't make enough explosive to fill up the, the container, the eye, uh, not the eyeglasses, the uh, contact lens fluid container. And then he didn't have time to make more because he was going out. So, uh, you know, he left the bottle, he didn't top off the bottle and he felt like that's one of the reasons why uh, that plane didn't go down. But uh, but there, the purpose of that wasn't to go down, the purpose of that plane was to see if he could get the bomb on the plane and see how far it could go. In late December of 1994, Ramzi Yusuf's friend, Abdul Hakim Murad, you remember him, the guy who suggested bombing the World Trade Center and volunteering to fly a plane into CIA headquarters of the Pentagon, he and Wali Khan Amin Shah returned to the Philippines, 
meaning that at least three of the Bajinka plot conspirators are together in the same city to make final preparations to carry out the attacks. January 6, 1995. Remember Ramsey Yusuf's propensity for being careless and handling chemicals and explosives? That night, he and his childhood friend Murad were in the Doña Josefa apartment building burning chemicals that they had obtained to make explosives. According to a court document, at around 10.45 p.m. local time, a security guard sees Yusuf and Murad running down the building stairs carrying their shoes. Their neighbors had noticed smoke coming out of the apartment window and notified security. The security guard goes to the apartment, where Yusuf and Murad are standing outside denying him entry. The security guard returns to his post to call the police to no avail. He goes back up to the apartment. This time, Murad lets him in to look around. He notices a salt-like substance and burn marks near the sink. Murad's excuse was that they had been mixing ingredients to make fireworks for a belated New Year celebration. The guard went downstairs and called the fire department. Yusuf left the apartment complex at this point. Here's former FBI agent Frank Pellegrino. Any thoughts on why Ramsey was so careless given his line of work where he's handling explosives? <laughs> no, I mean, it's hard, it's hard to explain. He, he obviously got hurt after the 93, he went, went home and, and an explosion occurred. He, his hands got hurt a little bit and his, his eye. Uh, then he, you know, he, he almost sets off an explosive in the Josefa. I mean, sets off some material. I mean, he, he claims it was just smoke that never would have exploded, but just carelessness. Uh, it's, it's obviously what got them got them caught, you know, it was, it was the smoke coming out of the, the apartment. So, you know, I mean, sometimes I, I think it's carelessness combined with overconfidence, I suppose. A bad combination for anything, really. Yeah, but, yeah. yeah. After the firefighters had come and gone, the security guard allowed police to search the apartment. According to a court document, they found, quote, cartons of chemicals, Casio timers, wristwatches with wires attached, and juice bottles with unknown substances inside. Murad returned to the apartment on Ramzi Yusuf's orders to try and get the laptop they had left behind before police could check its contents. It was a risk, not one that Ramzi Yusuf himself was willing to take, probably because he was already a wanted fugitive, so he delegated it to his friend Murad. Murad was spotted at the Doña Josefa by a policeman, and he immediately tried to flee. He tripped over an uprooted tree trunk, was arrested, and taken into custody. The court filing notes, quote, While in custody at the apartment, Murad called Yusuf's cellular telephone. Almost immediately after receiving this call, Yusuf made arrangements to leave the country. He purchased a plane ticket to Singapore and fled the Philippines approximately five hours after Murad's call. Why take the risk? The laptop contained enough information to identify everyone involved, the extent of their plans, and contact information for almost everyone they knew. According to the New York Times, a potential motive for the planned attacks was found in a draft letter saved on the computer's hard drive. The letter threatened attacks against American targets, quote, in response to the financial, political, and military assistance given to the Jewish state in the occupied land of Palestine by the American government. The laptop, a Toshiba satellite T-1950CT, is a bulky device when compared to the ones used 25 years later. According to Orion Blue Book, this particular model was available between 1993 and 1997. It's roughly about the size of a small briefcase. According to an August 1993 edition of Computer World, it weighed 7.4 pounds. Its retail price was listed in a May 1994 issue of InfoWorld at between $3,299 and $3,499 at a $200 drop from an earlier price. 
To give that price tag some context, the laptop cost more than the bomb Ramzi Youssef built to blow up the World Trade Center. As of this writing, Ramzi Youssef's laptop is an exhibit at the 9-11 Memorial Museum in Lower Manhattan. Investigators found a name and a telephone number for a Khalid Sheikh, similar to the name who had wired $660 to Ramzi Youssef before the World Trade Center bombing. There was also a letter asking for money signed by Khalid Sheikh and Bajinka. For a brief time, FBI officials thought their Filipino counterparts had Ramzi Youssef himself in custody. You know, the first indications we were getting was that you know, he was, Murad was telling the Philippine police that he was Ramzi Yosef. So, you know, that's the first information we got that it actually might be Yosef that was arrested. You know, the first piece of information we got in New York, my supervisor, Neil Herman, you know, brought the information out to me and asked me what I thought. And I said that it seems to me that whoever they're talking to, if he's not Ramsey Yosef, he is someone who knows Ramsey Yosef because he's saying things related to the 93 bombing that really weren't public. So it has to be somebody who, at the very least, had spoken to Ramsey. Philippine authorities would eventually turn Murad over to the FBI on April 12, 1995. Meanwhile, police also discovered, quote, photographs of Pope John Paul II, Bibles, and confession materials. Remember, the Pope was scheduled to visit Manila on January 12th, less than a week later. Police collected a few items from the apartment, then filed for a search warrant, which was issued by a local judge. This time, a local police bomb squad inspected the apartment. More details from the court filing. Quote, They videotaped the contents of the apartment and seized several items, including Yusuf's laptop computer, papers and books with instructions for making bombs, a chemical dictionary, and many chemicals and mechanical components which could have been used to make bombs. On Yusuf's laptop computer, the police found various files, including a letter claiming responsibility for future attacks against American targets by the 5th Division of the Liberation Army. Remember, this is the same fictitious radical group he made up to claim credit for the World Trade Center bombing a few years earlier. January 11, 1995, Manila police arrest Bajinka accomplice Wali Khan Amin Shah after authorities determined that a pager called by Yusuf after Murad's arrest was registered in the name of Shah's girlfriend. Shah managed to escape from custody a week later, but he was ultimately captured in Malaysia in December of 1995. Malaysian authorities would turn him over to the FBI. Frank Pellegrino explained some of the issues he experienced in putting together a criminal case which took place overseas for what would come to be known as the Bajinka plot. The Manila case was a little bit more difficult because we were trying to, you know, you had jurisdiction issues, you had, I mean, you had a, you know, a foreign national trying to blow up airlines in a foreign country, um, you know, trying to get that back to the States. There were a lot of legal issues with that. And then having to, when, when you have a case that occurs overseas, you're dealing with evidence that is overseas and witnesses that are overseas. So now it's a matter of, of putting together and gathering and, and working with local police forces to, to, to you know, let them, you know, try, trying to convince them to give you the evidence and, you know, get the witnesses and be able to talk to people. So it becomes a bit more, uh, you know, a bit more complicated. Just as he had after the World Trade Center bombing, Ramzi Youssef got on a plane immediately after the Doña Josefa debacle and went back to Pakistan. Once there, he went back to work and started planning a plot in Thailand. 
For this plot, he recruited a South African Islamist named Istaik Parker, who was supposed to help him smuggle bombs into the cargo holds of airliners leaving Bangkok International Airport. Parker backed out of the assignment, saying security was too tight. They went back to Pakistan in February of 1995. Yusuf had plenty of ideas for potential targets, but he also sensed that his new partner was somewhat hesitant. From Terry McDermott's book, The Hunt for KSM, quote, Parker was scared to death. Yusuf had told Parker that Parker's name was on the laptop left behind in Manila, and that he had no choice but to go all in. The knowledge that he might be a suspect himself led Parker to turn on Yusuf. Parker read a magazine article noting that the United States government was offering a $2 million reward for information leading to Yusuf's capture. Parker had a life-altering choice to make. Go to prison, die, or get rich. On February 3, 1995, Parker called the American Embassy in Islamabad. Within 48 hours, Ralph Horton, the lead FBI agent for much of the Asia region, was in Pakistan to run the operation to capture Ramzi Youssef. The Pakistani government at the time was headed by Benazir Bhutto. She thought she had once been a target of Youssef's and KSM's. Her government was more than willing to assist in capturing him and turning him over to the FBI. Parker got information that Yusuf would be spending the night at a specific guest house and then leave for Peshawar the next morning, where it would be difficult, if not impossible, to catch him. A surveillance team was placed outside the building. February 7, 1995. Eastaik Parker had made plans to stop by the guest house to see Ramsey Yusuf the morning before he was supposed to leave for Peshawar. He left the guest house shortly after, running his hands through his hair as he left the building. That was the sign for the capture team to move in. They walked into the building, stormed Yusuf's second floor room, and captured him. He was hustled out of the guest house and taken straight to the airport. He was in the air within an hour, on a private plane headed for an airfield in Orange County, New York. Why there, of all places? The Southern District of New York had jurisdiction in this case because of Yusuf's role in the World Trade Center bombing. Former FBI agent Pat DeMuro explains. When somebody was rendered back to the United States to stand trial, they were brought into Stewart Air Force Base. They were not allowed to touch ground any place other than Stewart Air Force Base, which was in the jurisdiction of the Southern District of New York. For that specific reason, so that so that their case would fall in under the Southern District? Well, technically, wherever their foot touched ground, that's where they should you know, be brought to, uh, to a hearing. The issue of legal jurisdiction for other terrorism investigations will be covered in more depth in a future episode. Also on the long flight back to New York were U.S. Secret Service agent Brian Parr and FBI agent Chuck Stern. Ramzi Youssef waived his Miranda rights, rights which are granted to him as a criminal defendant by the American Constitution, based on a precedent set by a 1966 Supreme Court case. According to the Legal Information Institute at Cornell Law School, quote, the court held that a defendant cannot be questioned by police in the context of a custodial interrogation until the defendant is made aware of the right to remain silent, the right to consult with an attorney and have the attorney present during questioning, and the right to have an attorney appointed if indigent. Law enforcement officers have been betrayed reading Miranda rights to people they arrest in countless movies and television shows. The language is direct and simple. It does not require a Harvard Law degree to understand. Remember, Ramzi Youssef was educated in Wales and spoke multiple languages. He was not tricked into waiving his Miranda rights. Youssef agreed to be interviewed on the condition that no notes be taken. 
His thinking was that if there was no written record of the interview, he could later deny that it ever happened. This allowed Parr and Stern to question him during the flight for almost six hours, off and on. He confessed to both the World Trade Center bombing and the Bajinka plot. Hours later, Ramsey Youssef was in a helicopter flying over Lower Manhattan when he saw the World Trade Center was still standing. Why did he waive his right to remain silent and give the government more ammunition to use against him? Former federal prosecutor David Kelly offers this take. Bad guys tend to want to speak. Now, I've been a prosecutor for a long time, and I've been a police officer before that. And between the two roles, I can't tell you how many times, you know, thousands of times I administered Miranda warnings to a defendant. And I would say probably you could count the times uh, on one hand how many of them invoked their rights and, and refused to say anything. Um, you know, they just, criminals tend to want to speak. And in this case, I think, you know, in this case, you know, they think they're, they're very smart um, and thought that they could kind of outsmart and talk their way out of something. And um, they came up with statements that, in the end, helped to sink them. April 1995. East A. Parker, the South African who provided the intelligence leading to Ramsey Yusuf's arrest, didn't want to go into the U.S. government's witness protection program. He was flown out of Pakistan back to his native South Africa. Port Authority Detective Matthew Bashir flew to South Africa carrying Parker's $2 million reward in cash in two large duffel bags. He and a State Department official agreed to meet with Parker in Cape Town to make the exchange. Bashir handed over the bags filled with cash, but noted that Parker was required to count the money. It took him four hours. By the end of 1995, three of the four conspirators in the Bajinka plot would be in custody of American law enforcement. One was still on the loose, but he would wind up being the most dangerous one of the lot. September 5th, 1996, a grand jury convicts Ramzi Youssef, Abdul Hakim Murad, and Wali Khan Amin Shah on all nine counts for their roles in the Bajinka plot. Khalid Sheikh Mohammed was indicted as a co-conspirator, but avoided standing trial because he was still at large at the time. Yusuf was convicted separately for planning a test bomb on Philippine Airlines Flight 434, which killed a passenger and forced the plane to make an emergency landing. Ramzi Yusuf and Ayad Ismail's criminal trial for the World Trade Center bombing began on August 5, 1997. David Kelly was the federal prosecutor in that trial. It was an interesting case to try, um, several months to try. I mean, first you have to, you know, you had to establish the explosion, which wasn't difficult. You had to, you know, um, establish that, you know, the six people died. You'd have to establish their death as legal matters. Um, you had to go back and basically reconstruct um, and work backwards. So you start at the, at the bomb scene and you piece together the rider van. So you start off with finding, you know, a, a bunch of wrecked vehicles in the garage of the World Trade Center and working through that debris to find where the cars were most damaged to determine what the center point was, what ground zero was of ground zero. We had, as I said, found the rider van and you had to piece it together um, with the various parts and the VIN number, the vehicle identification number, um, to trace it back to the rider van proprietor in New Jersey. So we had to bring in several pieces of a blown up vehicle into the courtroom 
to connect it to the rider van and then connect the rider van to the um, being what had carried the explosives into the garage. So it's a little bit of a tedious endeavor, but one that we had to undertake. And then once you do that, then you have to work backwards more and go to the, you know, go back to the rider van and figure out who had contact with that van um, and then work back even further to establish that people had been involved in locating the, the ingredients for ammonium nitrate um, to load that van with um, and make the connection between that and in my case, Ramsey Youssef and Iyad Ismail. Um, and then you had to place them in that location uh, on the day of the bombing and their subsequent flight. Now, both of those defendants, well, each of those defendants made statements, some of which were, as we say, once, once, we, once we arrested them, uh, Youssef uh, from overseas and Ismoil from Jordan. And in each case, they made what's called false exculpatory statements. So in Ismoil's case, he claimed that he had been randomly selected by the bomber conspiracy, conspirators um, in Times Square, um, was lured by them to drive the van into the World Trade Center, not believing or understanding that there was a bomb in there, but understood it to be a load of shampoo. So anyway, um, but so it's it's a it's it's a bit tedious, but has several parts to it, um, and that's pretty much what we did in trying that case. November twelfth, nineteen ninety seven. After three days of deliberation, the jury convicted both Yusuf and Ismoil. Among the most damning evidence presented at the trial were Yusuf's self-incriminating tales of his role in the plot that he told during the long flight from Islamabad to New York. U.S. Secret Service agent Brian Parr recounted that conversation during his testimony before the grand jury. After Yusuf and Ismoil's conviction, the New York Times spoke to William Lavin, a mechanical superintendent who worked at the World Trade Center who lost four colleagues during the bombing. Lavin told the paper, quote, Is there relief in this? Yes. Is it closed? I doubt it. January 8, 1998. Ramzi Youssef is given a life sentence, plus 240 years for bombing the World Trade Center. He was also fined $4.5 million in order to pay $250 million in restitution. At the hearing, Yusuf railed against the United States and Israel, saying, quote, The government in its summations and opening statements said that I was a terrorist. Yes, I am a terrorist and I am proud of it. And I support terrorism so long as it was against the United States government and against Israel. Because you are more than terrorists. You are the ones who invented terrorism and using it every day. You are butchers, liars, and hypocrites. The presiding judge, Kevin Duffy, listened to his comments and fired right back at him, saying, quote, You are not fit to uphold Islam. And, quote, Your God is not Allah. You worship death and destruction. What you do, you do not for Allah. You do it only to satisfy your own twisted sense of ego. Judge Duffy, who presided over the World Trade Center and Bojinka trials, died from coronavirus on April 1st, 2020. He was 87 years old. Khalid Sheikh Mohammed was born April 14, 1965, the eighth of nine children to ethnic Baluchi parents who immigrated from Pakistan to Kuwait in the 50s during the beginning of that country's oil boom. 
His father was also the imam at a local mosque. As journalist Terry McDermott pointed out, the newfound wealth meant Kuwaiti citizens had guaranteed jobs, housing, medical care, education, and pensions. But these benefits would not apply to the foreign guest workers, mainly Palestinians, Egyptians, and South Asians, who made up the majority of the country's residents. They were also a significant part of the workforce in the oil fields and the service economy. This created a dynamic where the foreign workers were treated as second-class citizens. It is difficult to imagine this dynamic not having an impact on Khalid Sheikh Mohammed as he was growing up. As Terry McDermott wrote in his book, quote, This created a case system, dividing those with citizenship, the native-born Kuwaitis, from the guest workers, known locally as Bedoun, those without. Because of the age difference with his eldest siblings, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed was closer in age to his nieces and nephews. This includes the boy who would grow up to become Ramzi Youssef nearly 25 years later. When KSM was 16, he followed his older brother Zahed's lead and joined the Muslim Brotherhood. He graduated from high school in 1983 and enrolled at Chowan College, a small school in Murfreesboro, North Carolina, located about 120 miles northeast of Raleigh. After one semester, he transferred to North Carolina Agricultural and Technical State University in Greensboro, a historically black college that counts the Reverend Jesse Jackson among its alumni. While KSM lived here, another nephew of his named Abdul Karim transferred to the university after spending two semesters in Oklahoma. Karim would major in industrial engineering and become roommates with his uncle. According to the 9-11 Commission report, Karim would later go on to join Al-Qaeda. KSM graduated with a degree in mechanical engineering in December of 1986. According to Terry McDermott, North Carolina A&T had a population of around two to 300 Middle Eastern students from a variety of nations many of whom were experiencing life in the West for the first time. Some were thrilled by what they saw and experienced. Others were appalled. KSM fell into the latter category. According to McDermott, quote, Like many other religious Muslims, Muhammad developed a dislike for the U.S. in his time here and a disdain for many of his fellow Muslims. A CIA intelligence summary would later conclude, quote, KSM's limited and negative experience in the United States, which included a brief jail stay because of unpaid bills, almost certainly helped propel him on his path to becoming a terrorist. He stated that his contact with Americans, while minimal, confirmed his view that the United States was a debauched and racist country. FBI agent Frank Pellegrino, who spent years chasing Khalid Sheikh Mohammed around the world, eventually got a chance to interview him at Guantanamo Bay. What was your impression of him personally? I, you know, I kind of felt like I knew him already from my conversations I had with Ramsey Yosef, very much alike, you know, big personalities, engaging, you know, sense of humor, um, you know, very much, very much like Ramsey, I thought. According to the 9-11 Commission report, KSM first visited Pakistan in early 1987 when he traveled to Peshawar. His older brother Zahid introduced him to the Afghan Mujahid Abdul Rasul Saif, leader of the Islamic Union Party. The report notes, quote, Sayaf became KSM's mentor and provided KSM with military training at Sayaf's Sada camp. He would later go on to do administrative work for Abdullah Azam. Khalid Sheikh Mohammed worked at the newspaper published by Abdul Rasul Sayaf's political party, Islamic Union. In doing so, he was following in the footsteps of his younger brother Abed, who was already working there when he arrived. KSM also taught engineering at Sayaf's university. Abdul Rasul Sayaf was a Pashtun who was educated at Al-Azhar University in Cairo and had spent time in Saudi Arabia. 
This meant that he was comfortable with both Afghan and Arab cultures. He was also a member of the Muslim Brotherhood. According to journalists Terry McDermott and Josh Mayer, Islamic Union was one of seven political parties in Peshawar, quote, designated by the United States and Saudi Arabia as worthy recipients of the hundreds of millions of dollars they poured into the war against the Soviets. They also described him as a favorite of the CIA. Between 1988 and 1992, KSM helped run an NGO that aided young Afghan Mujahideen in Peshawar and Jalalabad. Before leaving Afghanistan in February of 1989, the Soviets installed a friendly government led by Mohammad Najibullah, formerly the head of the secret police. The war against the Soviets may have been over once they left, but the Mujahideen thought they could easily topple the new Najibullah regime. They made plans to attack Jalalabad, a garrison town just across the border from Peshawar. A small group of Arabs who wanted to participate in the fight were ultimately placed within the Afghan ranks. Among this group of Arabs was KSM's brother Abed. What was supposed to be a quick and easy victory turned into a two-month siege. In their book, The Hunt for KSM, Terry McDermott and Josh Mayer write, quote, A group of Arabs wandered into a minefield, setting off a series of explosions. Among the dead was Abed Sheikh Mohammed. Abdullah Azam wrote, quote, With the Eternal Ones did this immigrant writer pass on, accompanied by the hearts of all who knew him. After the failed effort at Jalalabad, blame was passed around in every direction. Some in the Arab community faulted the Pakistani advisors who had pushed the attack. Others faulted the Americans. Terry McDermott thinks that there were three events in KSM's life which may have set him on his murderous path. Growing up as a foreigner in Kuwait, where he and his Badoon family were treated as second-class citizens, his college years in North Carolina, where he was alienated from the people and the culture around him, and the death of his brother in Afghanistan. I think there are three things. You named two of them. I, uh, you, you're right. Those people were treated like dirt. And they were just, they were there to work, and that was it. And then his experience in the United States, you know, as it turns out, you know, frat boys started are responsible for 9-11, right? So his experience as a kid, his experience in the United States, and then his brother's death, his useless death, it came, which came after the Americans abandoned them. And then the kid gets killed in, in the stupid fucking attack they were going to do in Jalalabad. I, th I think those three things, I mean, I don't know. I've never talked to him. That, that sure seems like a, they had to be at least partial cause. While Ramzi Youssef was living in New York plotting to destroy the World Trade Center, he kept in touch with his uncle. Khalid Sheikh Mohammed would later tell interrogators that he knew of Youssef's plan to launch an attack inside the United States, potentially as far back as 1991, while Youssef was still receiving explosives training in Afghanistan. November 3rd, 1992. Khalid Sheikh Mohammed wires $660 to a bank account registered to Mohammed Salome. This wire transfer is what initially brings KSM to the attention of authorities in the aftermath of the World Trade Center bombing. By 1992, the Soviet Jihad was over and KSM was trying to figure out what to do with his life. His younger brother Abed had been killed, his older brother Zahid had moved to the United Arab Emirates for a business opportunity, KSM spent a bit of time in Bosnia before returning to Peshawar and ultimately moving to Qatar the following year. It was Abdullah bin Khalid Al Thani, a member of the Qatari royal family and minister of interior, who invited KSM to the country and got him a job as a project engineer in the Ministry of Electricity and Water. 
He had previously been the Minister of Islamic Affairs. According to ABC News, Al-Thani is known as, quote, a radical Islamic fundamentalist with ties to Al-Qaeda. In Steve Call's book, Ghost Wars, he is described as, quote, known to harbor Islamists loyal to bin Laden. For KSM, the engineer day job was a perfect cover, and Doha would be his home base where he could live openly with his family. It was from there that he did all of his travels over the next several years to raise money or develop his terror network. January 6, 1995 While the Bajinka plot was literally going up in smoke inside the Doña Josefa apartment in Manila, KSM was safely back in Qatar. None of the other accomplices except Ramzi Youssef knew his real name. But he wasn't entirely invisible. He was already on the FBI's radar because of the wire transfer to Ramzi Youssef two years earlier, just before the World Trade Center bombing. Enough witnesses in the Philippines said he had been there and was a figure worth continuing to pursue. More importantly, the FBI found a fingerprint belonging to KSM on a chemical dictionary left behind at the Doña Josefa apartment. Though it didn't lead to his capture in Manila at the time, Former FBI agent Frank Pellegrino explains that the Bajinka plot helped the Bureau become more aware of KSM than they were before. You know, it certainly brought KSM to the forefront uh, for us. We indicted him for that in 1996. We certainly, because of that and the information we gathered based on that, we had, knew a lot more about him that we would, than we would have otherwise. You know, it was... It was you know, it certainly foretold of things to come. Some of the things that were told, some of the information provided, you know, certainly made you uh, understand that these people were serious about doing different things. Uh, obviously, the, you know, the whole 9-11, although not quite in that, in that scale, was discussed by, by Yosef and Murad, you know, back in 95. So, um, you know, I think it was, uh, it was, you know, it certainly helped us looking forward, but, you know, it also provided us a lot of information that uh, we wouldn't have had otherwise. Toward the end of 1995, Pellegrino and his Joint Terrorism Task Force partner, Port Authority Police Detective Matthew Bashir, were back in Manila, this time looking for evidence and witnesses in connection with the Bajinka plot. According to Terry McDermott and Josh Mayer's book, The Hunt for KSM, they talked to dancers, bartenders, hotel clerks, chemists, anyone that the plotters might have interacted with. Pellegrino went to a dental clinic that the suspects had frequented. He traded an FBI pin for the x-rays and dental records of one of the suspects. While visiting one of the girls KSM had known, a family member mentioned that the girl had received letters from him. This almost led to his downfall. The FBI wasn't that interested in the contents of the letters, but one of the envelopes had a crucial bit of information. This particular envelope came from the Ministry of Electricity and Water in Doha, KSM's employer. He had tried to cover up the return address with whiteout, but this was no match for the FBI technicians at Quantico who got to analyze the envelope. On top of this, KSM's name and Qatari phone number started appearing in random places, after arrests in separate cases in Italy and Canada. All signs pointed to Qatar, the small peninsula kingdom in the Persian Gulf. The country, which is slightly smaller than the state of Connecticut, has been ruled by the Althani family since the mid-19th century. According to the CIA World Factbook, it is only during the past six decades that it has transformed itself into a modern state, with an economy based on oil and natural gas. Now that they had Khalid Sheikh Mohammed's return address and phone number, 
investigators began looking for evidence that could be used to get a grand jury indictment back in New York. According to Terry McDermott, the CIA was able to get a KSM fingerprint from a glass in Doha, which they were able to match with the one obtained from the chemical dictionary at the Doña Josefa. Investigators also obtained photos of KSM. When they were shown to the girls back in the Philippines, they identified him as the man that they had seen mixing chemicals with Ramzi Youssef. The grand jury issued its indictment for KSM in January of 1996, though it was sealed at the time to avoid tipping him off. The question now was how to get him to the United States to stand trial. When Ramzi Youssef was captured in Pakistan a year earlier, it was done in cooperation with local authorities, but he was never arrested or brought before a Pakistani judge. He was taken immediately to a private plane and flown to the United States. This practice is known as rendition, which was in its infancy at the time. It is defined by the Rendition Project as, quote, the movement of detained persons across state boundaries in a manner which is outside of any legal framework. This is in contrast to the more traditional practices of extradition or deportation, where the judicial process of one or more countries is involved. The use of renditions as an intelligence gathering tool would grow dramatically after 9-11. Former NSC counterterrorism director Stephen Simon explains. Well, the Rendition program did exist. I mean, the renditions uh, went back uh, quite a few years, but they they had only been used up to that point uh, in um, uh, in the process of seizing cartel uh, uh, criminals from Mexico, and then it was only that those procedures uh, were only later adapted uh, to use against um, uh, Sunni militants. A meeting was held at the White House to discuss options for capturing KSM and Qatar. The CIA didn't have assets on the ground who could pull off the operation. The Pentagon came back with a plan involving a small attack force coming in from Bahrain. The Justice Department mentioned possible legal problems with the Pentagon's plan. The State Department didn't want to upset the domestic political situation in Qatar. On top of everything, the White House was negotiating an Air Force basing agreement with the Qatari government. There was an additional domestic political twist to keep in mind. The country was under the rule of the emir, Sheikh Hamad bin Khalifa Al Thani. He had overthrown his own father's government in what the British newspaper The Independent described as a, quote, bloodless palace coup in June of 1995. While these possible options to capture KSM are being discussed in Washington, an attempted counter coup took place in Qatar on Valentine's Day of 1996. The counter-coup ultimately failed, but it should be noted that according to a 2018 report by Al Jazeera, the committee organizing the coup included the future Crown Prince of Abu Dhabi, the then Crown Prince of Bahrain, the then Saudi Minister of Defense, and the then head of Egyptian intelligence. CIA officers stationed locally in Qatar suggested luring KSM to a foreign country, putting FBI agent Frank Pellegrino on the same flight, and having Pellegrino arrest him when KSM got off the plane. This plan was not approved either. In other words, there were no viable options being presented at the time, and no one was willing to take the risk. Ultimately, the government was left with no choice but to ask the Qataris to hand him over through diplomatic channels in Doha and Washington. Meanwhile, FBI personnel in a private plane were pre-positioned in neighboring Oman for a rendition operation that would never happen. Ultimately, KSM manages to sneak past everyone who is supposed to be monitoring him, and leaves the country. There is speculation that he was tipped off by someone in the Qatari government. He flees to his native Pakistan. Here's former NSC counterterrorism director Stephen Simon and former FBI agent Frank Pellegrino. 
there's no question that uh, that he gave us the slip. I mean, that there. I think the uh, the the problem at the time was that uh, it 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 took the U.S. government too long to move out um, and and nab him while he was in Qatar, and and that was the result, as I recall, of uh, an interagency dispute about um, the effects of. Um, um, essentially a kidnapping uh, of Khalid Sheikh Mohammed uh, would have on U.S. relations with the government of Qatar. And um, uh, that, that debate took so long to play off, to, to, to play out that, um, that uh, uh, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed uh, got away. At this point, you know, Ramsey was arrested, Murad was arrested, Wali Khan was arrested. KSM knew what they were arrested for, so I imagine he was wary of things. And I, and I think, you know, we were trying to work with the government there to figure out a way in which to, you know, render him back to the United States. And, and you know, I guess based on that, that they they were, you know, they, you know, there was a lot of issues back then. I mean, I, you know, the ambassador at the time, I, I don't think he he really felt the importance of what we were trying to do. And, you know, we weren't going to meetings with the with the officials from Qatar. We weren't allowed to go, and, and the ambassador would come back. And you know, I, we never felt that he had been at least providing them or or signaling to to them the urgency, which which what we had. And and so eventually, one day he came back from a meeting, and he said that they said that he he left the country, which was infuriating. Um, you know, whether you're, you know, he must have gotten, you know, he worked in a government ministry and if people were asking about him in the government, he would have heard about it. So, you know, I don't know if it was a matter of, you know, they're here, you better get the hell out of here or whether it was, you know, a lot of people in the government asking about why you're not at work and where are you, that he just got a, you know, he got the, the hint that um, it's not, not a good idea to, to stick around. This episode raises a tantalizing what-if scenario. If the FBI had managed to capture him in Qatar, bring him to the United States, and try and convict him for his role in the Bajinka plot, 9-11 would not have happened. KSM would continue to elude American and international law enforcement until February of 2003. His capture will be covered in a future episode. On the other hand, Stephen Simon argues that even if KSM had been captured in 1996 and 9-11 hadn't happened, Osama bin Laden and Al-Qaeda would have planned and executed another attack. It's clear that uh, uh, Khalid uh, Sheikh Mohammed was a, a, a central planner of the attack, and I think he conceived of the World Trade Center as, uh, as the target. So uh, his importance uh, to, uh, to the 9-11 attack is, was undeniable. Would would there have been uh, a serious attack uh, in the absence of Khalid Sheikh Mohammed? Uh, I believe the answer has to be yes, because Bin Laden himself was really committed to it, and uh, the things that he wrote, um, the things that he talked about, uh, all militated uh, in favor of a devastating attack against. Uh, what uh, Bin Laden called the the far enemy, 
And Bin Laden felt that, uh, again, I mean, he was emphatic on this point, that the Middle East could only be liberated from uh, apostate rulers, um, you know, at home, if the support they got from the United States was undermined. And the only way to undermine American support for those apostate rulers uh, in, in the Middle East was to attack the United States so devastatingly uh, that, uh, that the U.S. would pull in its horns and, and leave local rulers exposed, the so-called near enemy, uh, exposed to defeat in detail uh, by jihadist forces. Uh, so uh, I think that the strategy that, that bin Laden uh, had developed uh, led had to lead uh, to a 9-11 type attack, a mass casualty type attack. Simon also noted that he and his Age of Sacred Terror co-author Daniel Benjamin wrote an op-ed which ran in the January 4th, 2000 edition of the New York Times. In it, they warned of the dangers posed by bin Laden and his organization, which most Americans had never heard of at the time. Here's an excerpt. Quote, The terrorists allied with Mr. Bin Laden do not want a place at the table. They want to shatter the table. They are not constrained by secular political concerns. Their objective is not to influence, but to kill, and in large numbers. Hence, their declared interest in acquiring chemical and even nuclear weapons. KSM eventually went to Afghanistan in mid-1996, his return coming not long after Osama bin Laden's, who had just been expelled from Sudan. Through Al-Qaeda military commander Mohammed Atif, KSM is able to get a meeting with bin Laden at Tora Bora. According to the 9-11 Commission report, KSM speculated that bin Laden probably took the meeting because of Ramzi Youssef's impeccable credentials in jihadist circles. The two men knew each other, going back to the war against the Soviets, but had not seen each other since 1989. KSM briefs bin Laden and Atif on the World Trade Center bombing, the Bajinka plot, and other ideas he had been developing while living in the Philippines. He also pitched an idea in which trained pilots would crash planes into buildings in the United States. KSM and Ramzi Yusuf had discussed the idea of using planes as weapons as far back as 1995. Khalid Sheikh Mohammed's original idea for the operation would be grandiose to the point of absurdity, were it not for the fact he was dead serious about it. The plan called for 10 hijacked aircraft, nine of which would strike targets on the east and west coasts. Among them, the World Trade Center, the Pentagon, the U.S. Capitol, CIA and FBI headquarters, nuclear power plants, and the tallest buildings in California and Washington State. Khalid Sheikh Mohammed himself would be on the 10th plane, which will land at an American airport. After killing all the adult male passengers on the plane, he would call a press conference and deliver a speech criticizing U.S. support for Israel, the Philippines, and what he saw as repressive governments in the Arab world. The 9-11 Commission called it, quote, theater, a spectacle of destruction, with KSM as the self-cast star, the super-terrorist. According to journalist Terry McDermott, this is consistent with what we have learned about KSM's personality over the years. We know now that KSM is a magnificent narcissist, right? I mean, we've learned that from his public statements in, in different hearings at Guantanamo. I mean, that's, he, that's his defining characteristic. He compares himself to George Washington. He thinks highly of himself. Bin Laden didn't make a decision on the pitch at the time, but he did unsuccessfully try to recruit KSM to join Al-Qaeda. 
This meeting of the two men most directly responsible for the 9-11 attacks is the key turning point in the story. With the ways and means to make it happen, their partnership would set events into motion with deadly and tragic results. This is the beginning of what would become the 9-11 plot, although it was only at the conceptual stage at this point. Looking back on it with the benefit of hindsight, the 9-11 attacks were a combination of Ramzi Youssef's failed attempt to destroy the World Trade Center and a reduced version of Youssef and KSM's original concept for the Bajinka plot. Bin Laden would not give his approval for what would come to be known within Al-Qaeda as the planes operation until late 1998 or early 1999. Fran Townsend, who would later serve as Homeland Security Advisor to President George W. Bush, weighed in on what impact Ramzi Youssef and Khalid Sheikh Mohammed had on jihadist terrorism. I, I think the influence, particularly of Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, can't be overstated. He was the first indication that they had a, an operationally strategic thinker, right? He understood exactly the impact. I mean, he, he understood it was going to drive a wedge with the Saudis. He understood there was going to be an economic impact. He was a really strategic thinker, much more so in my judgment than Ramzi Youssef, um, who was a more, more of a tactician about how do you execute. Um, we used to laugh and we used to say that strategic planning job had the shortest shelf life post college Sheikh Mohammed because once we got into sort of a battle rhythm post 9-11, you'd target that person, right? Whether it was for a drone operation or special forces, because that was the person that was the greatest threat to the United States. And so you had a short, once you got promoted to that job, you had a short shelf life um, because we then understood the hierarchy. But, but Khalid Sheikh Mohammed was a, um, he, he just had the ability to get these guys into the camps, get them trained, deploy them. He, he was just sort of the, for lack of a better term, the brains of the operation. As for Ramzi Yusuf himself, his biggest contribution to international terrorism was simply showing the world that the United States could be attacked, even though his plot to destroy the World Trade Center was ultimately a failure. Now settled in Afghanistan, Osama bin Laden had a relatively safe space to live and plan operations, free of the outside pressures that had driven him from Sudan. He also had a network of jihadists spanning the globe, some going as far back as the 80s, and a seemingly unending supply of volunteers ready to join his cause. With all this working in his favor, it would soon be time for him to go public and for Al-Qaeda to launch its first major attacks. That's it for this episode of Zero Hour. If you want to learn more, go to the website ZeroHourPod.com, where I've included a list of articles, documents, and links that I used in my research. The next episode will look at Osama Bin Laden's media blitz in 1996 and 1997, and the world's response, or lack thereof. It will also include first-hand accounts from three survivors of Al-Qaeda's attacks in Kenya, Tanzania, and Yemen, and look at how scandal-plagued President Clinton responded or didn't. I'm David DeSola. Thank you for listening.